holiness. What's up with holiness and Christians? Don't they know this is the 21st century? I mean, why live according to those rules that are of your grandmother's generation? I think that's how a lot of non-Christians think about Christian purity or Christian holiness. I mean, in today's age, where one's gender is as fixed as one's feelings, this Christian purity and holiness, the standard that God has and Christians say is in God, is at best passe, isn't it? No longer fashionable. It's of a different age. I remember having a a conversation with a client of mine at 24-Hour Fitness when I was a personal trainer, and she had a very big personality that was fitting for her job as a club promoter. And, uh, you know, we were becoming friends over time, and she knew that I was a Christian. That was very clear. And she knew I was interested in being a pastor. So after training her for a while, we considered each other, you know, friends. And she would regularly invite me out to the clubs, and my repeated answer to her was that I just wasn't interested. And after hearing that answer for one more time, she finally blurted out in the middle of the training session, you just go to church because you want to be good. And her comment caught me off guard, frankly. I didn't know how to respond. I certainly did not go to church and believe in Jesus and give my whole entire life to him because I wanted to uphold some cold, arbitrary standard of morality. I didn't follow Jesus because I wanted to be good. I wonder if you, if someone asked you why you seek purity and holiness, why you do not sin when they, your friends want you to sin, how would you respond? In our passage today, In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 24, Paul here gives us a reason for why Christians ought to pursue holiness. Go ahead and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 24. I believe it's found on page 977 of the Black Bibles found in front of you. In this passage, we see that Christians are to pursue purity and holiness because that is who God is. And that is who God made us as Christians to be. If you're visiting with us and you you call yourself a non-Christian, I hope that you're able to turn to your friend who brought you and know that what's going on in your friend's life, how they too want to pursue purity and holiness, the reason why they're doing that is because a real change has actually taken effect in their lives. I mean, what you're seeing right there, if they are a true Christian, is real and has been brought about in their hearts, in their minds, and so clearly, as you're probably coming to realize, in their actions. Look there at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 24. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, 
and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This passage is a call to purity. It's a call to purity. And Paul's letter is going to get very practical, talking about the nitty-gritties of what it actually means to be holy and pure as God is holy and pure. But here, before he gets to the practical, he reminds readers that Christians are are to be a holy people because God himself has made us to be holy. Why are Christians to be holy? It's basically the question that we ask and answer today. Why are Christians to be a holy people? First, it is because our old self is gone. Look there in 17 to 19. I'll read that one more time. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. You see the driving command there in that first verse? It says there, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. So if you are here today and are a non-Jewish person, you are Gentile. But don't worry, if you're visiting us for the first time and you are a non-Jewish person, he's not taking a shot at your ethnicity. So when he writes and he says, don't do what the Gentiles do, he's not saying, don't be the ethnic person that you are. He's actually writing to Gentile people. He's writing to a church that's largely non-Jewish. He knows that. He's not dumb. So he's not going after ethnicity here. What he's saying is that Christians are called to abandon their old life that was marked by sinfulness as they lived in opposition to God. Paul uses the word Gentiles here as kind of like a summary word for those who do not belong to God. So in the Old Testament, God had chosen Abraham and then uh, some from Abraham's line who eventually become Israel. And then he adopts them as his people. Those are the people who belong to God. There was Israel and then there was the Gentiles. Uh, But uh, the Gentiles, they still could join God's people. But by and large, if you were a Gentile choosing to follow paganism, choosing to reject God, here you were a You did not belong to God. But as God revealed more of himself, he revealed that it is not those who share the same blood of Abraham. It's not those people who are really God's people. But it's those who share the same faith of Abraham. That is faith in the God of the Bible, whether they be people from uh, Costa Rica, Mexico, of Chinese descent, Korean descent, anything. All those who have the same faith of Abraham are considered God's people. They are spiritual. They are part of spiritual Israel. And if you don't share the same faith as Abraham and as Christians today who believe in this, the God of this Bible, uh, then you would be considered a spiritual Gentile, a spiritual Gentile. So what does it look like to live as spiritual Gentiles or basically life apart from Christ? In short, it is a sinful life. It is a Sinful life where sin affects every part of your being. And we see in the passage here, uh, the sin has affected uh, people's heads. It affects people's hearts and it affects people's hands. So first, in relation to the head or the mind, you see the description there. These spiritual Gentiles, have they're, they're marked by futility of their minds. Darkened in their understanding. And then he describes them as being ignorant. 
So if you are in sin, you struggle to think accurately about your very own self. You struggle to think accurately about the whole entire world. And then, most importantly, you struggle to think accurately and rightly, precisely about the Lord who is over all things. And so that's here this, this, this description of futility of their minds, darkened in their understanding, and then ignorance. Now, this ignorance is not talking about just, uh, I don't know, factual knowledge about God. That's not the ignorance here. This is talking about really the inner person that is set against God and that really uh, somebody who chooses to reject God. You see a lot of parallels in Romans chapter 1 where the people know that there is a God. In Romans chapter 1, his invisible attributes are displayed in the very creation that he has made. And yet the people, yet those who have rebelled against him, they choose to reject God. They don't honor him. They don't give thanks to him. Instead, they take the glory of God and then they exchange it for a lie. It's, uh, here, what we see in Ephesians chapter 4 is very similar to Romans chapter 1. And you can go ahead and read that this afternoon and see the parallels. So these people are have this futility of mind. But not only that, though. It doesn't, oh, this sin doesn't only affect the, the mind, it affects the heart. So those who live in sin are described to be hard-hearted or Callous. You can imagine sort of having a calloused heart. They are unfeeling towards God. Now, okay, just, just imagine, I mean, just pick somebody that you have a relationship with here on earth. Now, imagine if you think and are absolutely convinced that that person is out to get you. Whether that person be a father, a mother, a husband, a child, whatever. If you are convinced that that person is out to get you, then your heart all of a sudden will feel the need to be callous towards that person. Because all they're going to do is destroy it and cut it up even more. And so the heart gets calloused there. But then, of course, as sin affects the mind and the heart, so it also affects actions. Same in our relationship with the Creator here. And it says there that these people have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And then the judgment is, finally, after their heads and their hearts and their hands are all sort of tainted by sin, by depravity as christians call it they are alienated from god in verse 18 this is alienation that we've seen before those people these people are apart from god they don't know jesus christ and so they themselves have alienated themselves from god you know again if you're if you're a non-christian paul <clears throat> doesn't intend to pick on you nor do we intend to pick on you uh, you might seem that way because, you know, Paul, he's constantly referring to their minds, their hearts, and their actions. But it's really good to keep in mind there, you know, this is the experience of the Christian too. These are our experiences. We understand what it's like to suffer from these spiritual ailments. So you look there in verse 22, he's, he, Paul makes it very clear that this is our former way of life. This is our old self. And then if you turn over to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, you see there too, Paul is not just simply saying, oh, it's, that's the sinful life is what they are or experience. It's not what we experience. That's not what he says. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, and you, he says, you Christians were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh. 
So he does not mean to single out people or the spiritual Gentiles, so to speak, and say that that is uh, the sinful lifestyle is only in relation to them. But no, he says that is us. But something has happened to the us, isn't it? The people that he's talking to so that they Gentiles can look outward and say, oh, yeah, we actually aren't like them. So they are able to look over the boundaries in in the church and, and recognize so clearly that something has happened. And that something Paul mentions in Ephesians that, that this is what God has done in Jesus Christ. If you look there, he goes on in chapter two, verse 11. He says, remember that at one time you Gentiles, he says, you guys were in the flesh. Verse 12, remember that at one time you guys were separated from Christ. You were alienated from God's people. But then look at 13. This is what has happened. That enables them to look at what goes on in the gates of the kingdom of Christ, so to speak, and to recognize that they are distinct. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off alienated have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And what happens here is that Christ himself uh, destroys the boundaries that were there between sinners and God and Christ himself reconciles God to man. So we were the ones who were alienated. We were the ones who didn't think about the world right. We, we didn't even have hearts towards God. In fact, we were hardened to God. And then we were the ones doing things according to the world. But yet God in his grace chooses to bring divine illumination as David read for us from the book of Ezekiel and the assurance of pardon, thank God there is pardon even though we sin, God himself gives us a heart of flesh and removes the heart of stone. And not only that though, but when we are saved all by grace through faith, according to Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, now get this, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God himself prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He gives us a new mind. He gives us a new heart and he even prepares for us good works to go ahead and walk in. That's what happens when Christians are saved. Our sins are wiped away. The wrath that we deserve is taken away and God is satisfied. And we therefore are forgiven. It talks about how God adopts people into his very own family and counts us as sons, daughters of his. Now, while this description is stark of the spiritual Gentile, you know, there's a biblical reason for why there is, uh, why there is such a severe state of alienation. There's a reason why this is so severe. Uh, assume for a moment that God really is the creator. Just assume for a moment that God really is the creator of all things. You and me, everything in the world, as the Bible says. And in making you, God had every intention for his created people to grow in him. To mature in him, to learn to walk in his righteous and holy ways. And so experience blessings from God. But then also it was his intention that we go on and be a blessing to other people. He intended us to live and love underneath his rule submitting ourselves joyfully to him now imagine to turning to your creator your discipler the one in whom uh, uh, you are to mature in in whom is all perfect wisdom and knowledge that you need in whom is all perfect protection that you need all the wisdom that you lack 
all of the honor you could ever learn to live for, all of the love you needed, every perfection you could ever imagine. And in those things you are to mature and grow up into. And you turn and you look at your creator and you say, Nah, I got this. I got it. I got it covered. Friends, that's the essence of sin right there. According to scripture, that is the essence of sin. We have rejected God as king and his rule and have earned for ourselves just judgment. Because in saying, no, really, I got this God, we build up a rival throne against him, which is treason, punishable by death. Now, you understand this in daily situations. You might not understand it in, in relation to God, your creator, but you understand this in daily situations. Imagine if you got hired at your dream company, right? The best company you could ever work for. And uh, this company, you think, sets the benchmark for whatever it is that you appreciate. It sets the standard for what you want to accomplish, for what you even want to uphold. And one day, you choose, after your company lavishes on you, even though you don't deserve it, lavishes upon you a, a wonderful salary, wonderful benefits, a chance to be part of the team and to mature and to grow and to move forward their purpose, you saunter into the CEO's office and said, nah, I got this. I'm going to set the benchmark now. Would that go over well for you? If you did that to your parent, if you're, if you're a child, if you walked into your, your, your parent's bedroom and you just said, you know what, Dad, I got this. I don't really need you anymore. Would that go over well for you? For the employee, would not your boss simply say, okay, hey, have at it. I'll go ahead and give you over to your own ignorance and we'll see what happens. We understand this in daily situations and this is actually what happens in our spiritual lives as people reject God and choose to live in their own way. The Bible says that all people have sinned against their creator. In the head, we have sinned against God. We have wrongly assessed God and our own situation. So we lack the judgment. And then we also lack appreciation for the standard of glory, the standard of wisdom, the standard of knowledge. We have so underestimated God's glory and so foolishly overestimated our own. In our hearts, we too have sinned in this way. We reject, uh, we reject living for God's glory and then choose to live on our, uh, for our own glory. Because we so desperately want to fuel our own selves and really we become an idol unto ourselves. Regarding our hands and our actions, of course what we do outwardly, it just reflects what already goes on in the head, or sorry, in our hearts. You know, if this is the reality, which the Bible says it is, then it's no wonder there is such a blunt and bleak picture about people who sin against God. Who choose to detach themselves from the unshakable standard of righteousness and holiness and love and grace and purity to root, to root ourselves in what? The ever-shifting shadows of the morality of man. That's man's problem. Sinful man has chosen to cast off all moorings, and we are now lost at sea. Read the news, and you see evidence of it all over. Whether we are looking at the bombings that happened in Beirut, the attacks that we saw take place, or we've been watching the news reports that have taken place in Paris. But believe it or not, friends, that same stuff of man is in us too. Now, sure, we might not be as bad 
as they, or committing such abominations as they, you may not have murdered as they. But Jesus says if you hate, that same stuff that's in man is in you. Jesus says that if you lust, that same stuff that commits adultery is in you. The wonderful thing, though, friends, is that those who struggle with these things can indeed be saved. And we are saved in Christ. So in Ephesians chapter 2, it talks about how man is hostile to God. We are alienated to God, but then God himself is the one who uh, brings crosses over the cavern with Jesus Christ. He's the one who brings his own grace near, his own love, and so saves us. Naturally then, Paul exhorts the Christians who have repented of these sins, sins of the heart that lead to all sorts of other sins, and he says, look, don't walk in your old ways. In him you have forgiveness of sins, in him you have been saved. That is the way you once walked, friends. But now you are to walk according to Christ and the new ethics of the kingdom of God. So in Ephesians, it talks about how God brings us into Christ. And so we are so united with him. And so the very ethic of Jesus Christ becomes ours. And the ethic of Christ becomes the ethic of the people of the kingdom. And so we make this drastic change when we are brought into Jesus Christ. I mean, root yourselves in God who never changes, and there you have the foundation of life. There you have the never-changing foundation of righteousness, of purity, of holiness. But what is it that happens when you choose to root yourself in yourself? It begins to show itself in all kinds of ways, and we can look at sexuality, sexual morality. You remember last week when I mentioned that we become what we worship? In today's age, sexuality is fluid, very fluid. Relationships also are very fluid. Gender is very fluid because we root ourselves in a God who changes. And so naturally, we ourselves are going to change in every sort of way possible. I mean, forget ethics. Look at gender, sexual morality. But for the Christian, when we are saved, God roots us in himself, an unchangeable being whose foundation can never be shaken, immovable, holy, righteous, and perfect. These things are implied in verses 20 to 24. And there we see that Paul moves on to encourage Christians. Look there, 20 to 24. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. This brings us to point number two. We saw there in point number one that there, you know, the old has left. Out with the old. Point number two is in with the new. This is what is involved. This is why we as Christians can pursue purity. Because the old is gone, but now there is the new. In these verses, Paul speaks about what happened as God drew them near. As as we become members of his family, or just put it in kingdom language, as we receive passports to his kingdom and become full-fledged citizens. Remember that the mind 
is a huge theme in this section, a huge theme. If the mind of those who reject Christ is darkened, for the Christian, the mind has been awakened to truth or enlightened. But this enlightenment is not some secret knowledge, as if Christ never walked the face of the earth for everyone in the whole entire world to see. But being awakened to truth or enlightened is kind of like, it's spoken of as being a, enrolled in the school of Christ, so to speak. So if you are a Christian, you are in the school of Jesus Christ. You are to be discipled in Jesus Christ. Look there in verse 20. Did you notice what is the subject that Christians learn? This is not the way you learned Christ. It's interesting there, what they are learning is Jesus Christ. Did you notice who the teacher is that uh, the Christian hears? It is also Jesus Christ. And to where does the Christian go for this knowledge? It is also in Christ. Christ is the school, Christ is the teacher, and Christ indeed is the subject here. So you Christian are in him. You are part of his body of which he is the head. You are a full-fledged citizen of the kingdom of which he is the king. And we now have the privilege and responsibility of living under the king of love and according to his constitution. This is what happens when people are saved. God saves lost and confused sinners. He saves us from our sin, his own judgment, and he stops warring with us. Or he makes us stop warring with him as he shows us the beauty of the king and his glory and his love. And so reconciliation is had between us and God and between us and other people because God is the one who draws near to us in Jesus Christ the Son who died on the cross to save us from our sins. So what is it that we learned, heard, and were taught when we became Christians? So you Christian, when you were converted or when you were saved, what is it that you were taught? It says first, put off the old self or literally the old person. So you can think naturally about like a garment. This is something you would put on. This is also something you would put off. Here he says that we were taught when you became Christians to put it off. Put off the old person or set it aside that life that was so thoroughly tainted by sin. Second, you were taught to be renewed in your minds. So there again, the theme of the mind. It's, it's interesting here how he talks about in this section, as so many people understand this putting off and putting on to be a life of doing which it is, he's going to get to doing. But here he talks about the mind. He just drives us home in terms of the mind of the Gentile, those spiritually Gentiles, and then those who are of is spiritual Israel. He's talking about the mind here prior to talking about what they are to do. They are to be renewed by the transformation of their mind. You kind of think of it this like an ongoing renewal of the new life that we have in Jesus. Paul wrote in Romans 12, 1-2, this is what he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Which is why he says, renewed in the spirit of your minds. Not only that, though, thirdly, they are commanded to put on the new self, or Christ-likeness. That's what they were commanded when they became Christians. So every single one of these things is what they were taught when they became Christians. This is not a new command. A lot of people think that uh, this command to put off and put on is a new command, but it's not a new command. It's what happened when you became Christians. You were taught these things past tense. I find this to be pretty encouraging. I mean, just think about when you yourself sin. 
that same sin that marked your life before you became a Christian. Here he says that, look, guys, you were taught those things way back then. So the way that I look at this here is, you know, if I'm struggling to find my identity in Jesus Christ because I sin. He says, look, it's not like Christ's power to secure your salvation is somehow overtaken by Satan's power. So therefore, you presently need to put off the old self for the very first time. And then maybe you go on and sin again. And then, oh, man, the old self is sort of back on you like a cloak that you therefore need to kind of crawl out of and and throw off. He says, no, he says, back then you were taught those things and you actually did put it off. Even though you might still look like you're wearing it. Even though still sometimes your life is marked as if you you were still wearing those things. He says it already has been put off. Romans 6, 6, we know that our old self was crucified, dead, it's gone, it's finished. With Jesus Christ in order that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And then, of course, in his resurrection, we have been raised to new life. We have already put on the new self. And so here, in this encouragement, where he's going to go, he's going to move towards saying, look, now you just need to live according to it. You already wear the jersey, so now just live according to the team name as you bear the name Christian. Yes, certainly you will sin. And there is forgiveness for sin. But what he is going to command us to do, that is pursue purity, he roots us in what has already been won for us in Jesus Christ. I mean, you look there at chapter 4, verses, uh, verse 25. I mean, right, he, he bases all of his encouragements towards purity. Look at there, the, the encouragements towards purity. Therefore, having put away falsehood, as in it's already been done, It's already been sealed through Jesus Christ. Sin has already been paid for. Let each one of you go on and do X, Y, and Z. Given the truths that we're looking at right now. Given that our old selves have already been crucified with Christ. And given we've already put on our new selves. You know, we all to some degree struggle to live according to the salvation that we have in Jesus, don't we? I mean, some of you guys right now, as I've learned in your testimonies. Because I had the opportunity to, to interview everybody who, that wants to join the church, or most people. Um, I know for a fact that many of you look at your old life sometimes and say, man, that looks really attractive. That looks really attractive. I mean, I got a friend. I got a friend right now who regularly will look at his non-Christian friends and say, that life looks really attractive. I mean, just what if I could just throw off all of these things and all these commands and therefore live in sexual immorality. If I don't, I don't, I would therefore have to be responsible to more, towards my wife. Hey, I'd really love to be free from the responsibility of having to take care of my children. And so he regularly, as a Christian, looks back at the sinful life and says, man, that looks really attractive. Perhaps the world continues to call your name. And though your old self has been done away with, you still wrestle, even right now, to stay away from the world. You know what Paul says? How this, how this passage applies to us. Paul says, this ain't you. That's simply what he says. He just says, this ain't you. He says there, but this is not the way you learned Christ. 
So just imagine, right, we're sitting there longing for the world, longing as if we're somehow trapped in bars, the bars of Christianity, oh, how wicked. And we want, we're looking outwards, wanting what is out there, what the world has to offer. We want to live as spiritual Gentiles. And Paul comes along and says, this ain't you! Sometimes, you know, we, all we need is a good, just, uh, a good statement to stop it. Also in your testimonies, a couple of you that are going to be joining today, uh, if the church votes you in. Right? People have told you, just stop it. What are you doing? What's interesting here is that Paul moves on. He doesn't just rebuke us towards purity. Paul helps us reason for purity. Paul doesn't just rebuke us towards purity. But Paul helps us reason for purity. Look there in 20. He gets, to, he gets us to pause and then stare at our fleshly, sinful desires, doesn't he? It's like he's getting us to back up and to remember, okay, look, you might be looking at those things and longing. I want you to look at your longing and see what that stuff is made of. You were taught to put on Christ. You were taught to put off the old self, which belongs to the former manner of your life. But get this. The former manner of life is corrupt through deceitful desires so what it does is if we're standing in what we think is the jail of christianity and the gospel of god's free grace and salvation and looking outwards he says look even the very desires that you have to long for the things that are outside those are deceitful corrupt means that they think something is ruined or destroyed and according to the bible this corruption leads to death And this life is corrupted because of deceitful desires, not just desires, but which are associated with sinful things, but deceitful. They are tricky. So, friends, if you have a longing right now for something sinful, remember, your desires are tricky. How are they tricky? First, sinful desires sell themselves on short-term pleasure. Sinful desires always sell themselves on short-term pleasure, always hiding long-term commitment. That's what it does. I assume many of us here understand the dynamics of verse 19. In our sin, we give up ourselves to sensuality, defined as throwing off all restraint with regard to yourself or the rights of others, debasing yourselves and others. We give ourselves to sensuality with other people. We give ourselves to sensuality with people on the Internet. And then when this sensuality, as, as we long for the sensuality to carry out the desires of the body, don't we oftentimes just say, just this once, just this one time. And then in your own lives, think about that thing that you have given yourself to. Did it not get worse? Did you not find yourself yearning for more? Greedy for more impure things. Greedy for things that were more perverse. This greed here is defined as a continual lust for more. You know, where you just have to simply have to feed the beast. And we can apply it to all sorts of things, whether we are lusting for sex or money or drugs or food, comfort, power, fame, security, so many different things. But aren't we the foolish ones? Aren't we the foolish ones who keep on feeding this beast 
even though it is that thing that destroys our minds. I mean, you should be thinking right now, as you have given yourself to some sort of sensuality, some sort of greed, some sort of sin, isn't it that thing and those desires in you that destroy your minds, your relationships, your marriages? Doesn't it destroy the trust that you have earned, your futures? Doesn't it destroy others? Desires are tricky because they hide the havoc that comes with long-term partnership. Another reason why these sinful desires are so deceitful is that they always hide the fallout that follows on their heels. It always hides hides the fallout. So when Satan made uh, his first pitch to Eve about eating from the fruit of the tree and then to disobey God, he not only hid the truth about the fallout, I mean, he, in hiding the truth about the fallout, he sought to keep Eve oblivious to the fallout. You don't see him sort of rolling up to Eve saying, hey, uh, you know, this whole death and judgment thing, I really want you to consider that. All of the fallout that comes with you giving yourself into your deceitful desires. Just look at your own life. Many of you are still picking up the pieces from the fallout of sins that you have committed a decade ago, two decades ago, three decades ago, four decades ago. Here we have a reminder to think about long-term consequences of sin, don't we? And also the fallout that comes with it. And then turn to hate the deceitfulness of sin. So if you're standing at the bars of Christianity locked within the gospel thinking that this is the worst place you could be longing for the things that are outside here you're supposed to stop and think about the very things that make you yearn for all those other things outside and God says that those things are tricky friends. We're supposed to hate the deceitfulness of sin by reviewing actually all of the fallout that comes with giving ourselves to sensuality. Before, speaking of our previous lives, our minds were corrupted and we gave into things of the flesh, but thank God we have put off the old self all through Jesus Christ. He is the one who wins for us salvation. He is the one who secures our salvation. Then after thinking about the deceitfulness of sin, we can say with Paul, that is not me. That is not the way I learned Christ. That is not what happened when I heard Christ in his teachings And that is not what happens in the school of Jesus Christ. That ain't me, and I am not going down that road. You see how logical that is? Considering all of the fallout that comes with sin, considering all the long-term consequences of sin. You know, I recently bought a car. I I bought a car from a very lovely, kind woman, and she was trying to sell me this insurance and that insurance. And I'll tell you, she was a very good salesman. Right? We're not even talking about the spiritual powers that lay behind sin. And sin is trying to draw us to lead us away. She was just a straight up good saleswoman. And I trust she's actually trying to offer me a product, but she's also trying to sell me on something. So I had to say a number of times, hold on, hold on, let me do my own calculations. And then she'd come back with this, you know, saleswoman retort saying, oh no, but look, you really need this. And are you crazy? Are you telling me that X, Y, and Z? And I'd say, hold on, hold on, let me make the calculations. And then after I logically made the calculations, I'm able to say... I'm going to take my risk and not get the insurance because I don't think I'm going to pop my tire seven times over the next seven years. 
I have no reason to think that over the last 20 years that I've been driving, that that's going to take place. And I therefore can save me money by not going with the insurance. Even that took a lot of effort and willpower just to say no to insurance. (laughs) Imagine how much more effort it requires to say no to the devil who is trying to bring you down by your own deceitful desires or at the very least, the remains of sin that are still in your heart, even though God has given you a new one. The nature of our old self is not at all... The nature of our old self is not all that Paul points out. So just think, you know, if you're trying to battle sin, that's not all he points out. In effort to help Christians in their walk of faith, he reminds them of their new self. He moves on. And the fact that they that they are new, that they have been created anew, and he holds out the fact that they have been created after the likeness of God. He says, look, deceitful desires, old self, now the new self created in the likeness of God. So then he gets us, not not only to check ourselves as we look outward, but actually to look at ourselves and really to see what life is like in this kingdom. What a contrast, isn't it? Our old self was given to sin and stuck in the tar pit of depravity. Our new selves have actually been remade by the one who dwells in the heavenlies. And there's this contrast here of death and life. Our old selves were corrupted. They were ruined. They were destroyed, leading to death, according to Galatians chapter 5, Romans chapter 8. But when God saved us, he creates us anew. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Which means, friends, you can struggle with that nasty sin still. And yet you are a new creation. How encouraging is that, right? God already knows these things. But yet we are, in fact, new creations. We have become new. You know, no, no matter what we have done in the past, no matter what has ever been done to us in the past, you know, those things do not keep Christ from making us new. They don't stop Jesus from making his people to be righteous and holy. You see that there? That's the emphasis there. We've been created in righteousness and holiness. That is, we've been created to display and to, to reflect his very own righteousness and holiness. Of course, this is what happens when people are converted, right? When they are saved, they really become new. So you can think about, let's say, you know, Steve Jobs, the late Steve Jobs or any Apple products unfolding, you know, the product, the unfolding of a new product. Here we have God, right? When he gives us a new spirit, he takes out our heart of flesh and uh, heart of stone, gives us a heart of flesh. He has right here on display his new creation, righteous and holy. Created with the capacity to display his righteousness and holiness. You see right here, this is the positive side of a biblical rationale for why you ought to pursue holiness and purity. This is biblical rationale. It's logic, isn't it? Deceitful desires, bad. Look at your new self. Good. The capacity for righteousness and holiness to display his glory. You know, this here is ammunition for your ongoing fight for purity as we seek to live according to our new natures. 
This passage not only calls us to think through long-term and devastating consequences of your sin, it also calls you to consider your new natures and ultimately God's nature. That's who it is that we are to reflect as we are made in righteousness, in holiness. We are designed by our very natures to reflect this wonderful God. You know, sinning against God is oftentimes spoken, spoken of as adultery in the Bible. You know one way that a spouse can grow in their love for the other spouse? Even if there's genuine hatred. You know how, how uh, one spouse can grow in love for the other spouse? Whether the flame has gone out for a while, whether one party has sinned against the other, whether or not there is great bitterness, it is not to dwell on the person's faults, but on the person's strengths, right? The positives. You set your mind on the strengths and the positives, and here we have something like that, that Paul is encouraging us to do, is to think about God's character and let that fuel our love for him. Now, of course, the problem is never with God, as you know, sometimes there is in relationships, but always with us. But for you, Christian, who may struggle with sin right now, with remaining faithful to Jesus Christ, Paul helps you look at the perfections of Jesus that you yourself were created to display. God's righteousness and holiness. You know, if you want to grow in your worship of Christ and your, live, your life in Him, and then also your purity as you pursue Him, labor to know more of Him. Practical application. If you want to actually grow in your love for Him, and also in purity as you chase after Him, labor to know more of Him. Labor to know the thing that you were designed to reflect, righteousness and holiness. And then you begin to see what wonderful capacity God has given us to do these things, to display His glory to the world. And then your Christian life will become delight as opposed to drudgery. According to the biblical authors, gladly submitting to God is accomplished by or is accompanied by pleasure. You realize that? In the Psalms it says that at God's right hand there is pleasure forevermore. Paul says in the book of Philippians that he desires, he presses on to know him and then also to be found in him. And he's there satisfied in God's love. And that's all because he knows this God. Friends, when we cultivate a love and knowledge for God, following him and worshiping him becomes a delight. Without this love and knowledge, we will never worship. As A.W. Pink says, an unknown God can neither be trusted, served, nor worshipped. So when you, friends, hear God's call to live according to the new life he's given us, which means pursuing holiness, you realize that God doesn't only want his people living by his commands. He also wants us standing in conviction. God doesn't only want his people living by his commands, but he wants his people standing in conviction. That is standing in the knowledge of the gospel, standing in the knowledge of God. So keep in mind, over the next few weeks here, we're going to be looking at very specific commands of what we ought to do as Christians. And what will help you delight as you fight to keep those commands is to learn to think about sin the way God thinks about sin. 
It's to learn to also think about righteousness and holiness and purity the way that God thinks about righteousness and holiness and purity. This is learning to think God's thoughts after him. Learning to think God's thoughts after him. And this is what gives us discernment and wisdom as you evaluate what is best and godly. As you logically evaluate all those things that lie outside of the kingdom of God. Your own desires and then all of the wonderful things that are stored up for you in the heavenly kingdom. Philippians 1 verses 9 to 10 says, Paul prays this. He prays that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent. So there's our loves ought to be governed by the mind. Our Christian love ought to be governed by the Christian mind, by knowledge and discernment. So as we conclude, let's spend a few minutes in application. We've seen that the life of purity involves Jesus Christ dying on the cross for sins and there in our salvation as Jesus died on the cross we have put off our old self and put on the new self and now we're encouraged to just live in it. What are you doing in your ability to grow your ability to think God's thoughts after him? How are you pursuing a lifelong task of knowing God and being transformed through through the renewal of your mind? This is what God is pleased with, isn't it? He is not pleased with us simply coming to church because that's just what my family does all the time, every single Sunday. He is pleased, no, when we know him. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Friends, if you want to grow in your ability to think God, God's thoughts after him, let me encourage you to start with the basics. Just read and study the Bible. Read and study the Bible because in it you come to know and study more of God. This word of God that we are looking at every single week is God's own self-disclosure to man. Where God reveals himself, he reveals the plan of salvation, he reveals how indeed we can be forgiven of our sins and how we ought to live to please our Father in heaven. But friends, I'm not talking about glancing at it every day. If you had a love relationship, who takes the love relationship letters, the letter, the love letters that come from relationships, just simply glances at it and say, I'm done, done my duty. No need to think about it anymore. I'm finished. No, if you think about that, you know, I used to get Valentine's when I was 10 years old and the girls that I would like, I would pour over every single letter, every single word thinking about what it is that uh, the person could possibly mean and all the thousand variations. So why is it that so many of us And you know my experience, don't you, with those Valentines? I'm not the only one here. Uh, Why is it that when we come to the Word of God, we we read it as if this is something that we merely have to do, and then we're done with it after ten minutes? As if God were not the God who we're speaking, and as if this were not His divine revelation to us. I'm not talking about studying it and knowing it as an academic would. There are many academics who struggle to even know God. 
They could write all of their thousand volumes and know hardly anything there is to know about this God. I'm talking about studying this word, pouring over every word, turning them over, letting your heart be moved to prayer because of them, and letting your heart be moved to praise because of them. Friends, if you're not in the practice of uh, studying the word of God regularly, let me encourage you to pull out that bulletin that you have there. And if you turn over to the back, you'll see there that uh, a number of upcoming sermon texts have been listed down there. You see there on the back of your bulletin, the announcements, upcoming sermons, November 22. So next week we're going to be preaching on Ephesians. There's no book listed, but that is Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 to chapter 5, verses 21. So that's what we're going to be looking at. It's probably about 25 verses. Let me encourage you, if you are not in the practice of studying God's word in effort to know him, just go ahead and read that passage every single day. And let those words bring you to prayer and praise. Study it. Wrestle with it, pray through it, and then apply it. And then also it will prepare your hearts to come to hear the word of God when we gather together to hear the sermon and then to worship him. Is that your practice? To seek to grow to know God through studying his divine revelation? Another way you can think, um, you can learn to think God's thoughts after him is by reading other people's thoughts about God. Reading other people's sermons, other people's meditations. You know, one of the most spiritually formative books I have ever read is this book called Knowing God by J.M. Packer. It's considered definitely a 21st, or sorry, a 20th century classic. If you have not read this book, let me encourage you to just Amazon it and uh, go ahead and buy it. And then if you can't afford to buy it, I will let you borrow this copy so that you could uh, go ahead and take it home and to read on it and meditate. And what's fantastic is that he encouraged us to not only know facts about God, he says, no, that's not knowing God. You've got to take those facts and let that become an actual knowledge of God. A knowing of God that leads to a relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I encourage you to dive into the Word, dive into other books, not so that you might ultimately increase the storehouse of facts about God, but that so that you can determine what is excellent. And so, in the moment of weakness, when you long to live a life that God says you should not live, When you long to put on what Christ has already put off, you will be well equipped to logically approach the new life that you have in Jesus Christ. Knowing God helps so much in our walk of faith. Just like every other relationship. If your loved one is trustworthy and loving, and you are sure of their love of you, then they can ask you to do something that you might even question you might really wonder, is that really the best thing to me? And if you're so assured in their love for you, you just go ahead and do it because you trust them. God has given us his great display of his love for us in giving us his son who died on the cross for sins. And, he, and there we have put off the old man. Friends, if you're visiting with us as a non-Christian, do you want to put off this old man? Are you in the midst of experiencing sensuality and what all of that, what it leads to, the greediness for impurity, friends, and your conscience doesn't let you up, the guilt you experience never lets up. Friends, that old man can be put to death if you would repent of your sins and believe on Jesus Christ. If you stick around for our members meeting, which you are welcome to, even though it's for members, 
uh, you're visiting, you can stick around and you can hear testimonies about how people have uh, lived in sin and then how they have been saved. All of that by the grace of God, through faith. Clearly, it's not our own works that saves, but the work of Jesus Christ. And so when we cling to him and the salvation that we have in Jesus, we therefore are able to walk in newness of life, trusting in him, believing on him, even in the midst of difficulty and doubt. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your righteousness and your holiness. We thank you that it is in you alone that we can even be righteous and holiness as you give us, as you count us righteousness, as you take the righteousness of Jesus and give it to us. So, Lord, we can say, even in the midst of being sinful, we are sinful but just all at the same time. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would make us and cause us to be assured of your great love for us. So that even when we are tempted to walk in the ways of our old life, Lord, that we would continue to move forward in living after you, in thinking the same thoughts that you think in relation to our sin, in relation to holiness and righteousness, and that we would walk in newness of life. Father, we pray that you would protect our minds by the Spirit's power. We recognize, Lord, that you put a new law in our hearts when we become Christians. We know, Lord Jesus, according to this passage here, that we are supposed to be uh, growing in our new minds. That we are supposed to be renewed in our minds. So, Lord Jesus, we pray that we would indeed apply ourselves. That we would strive after thinking the very same thoughts that you think. And that we truly would be a display of your glorious grace in the midst of anything we might experience. And so we might live as the body of Jesus Christ here on this earth. In your name we pray. Amen.